Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly sermon podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. I wanted to just take a second and talk to you about our growth group series. Growth groups are an important part of our church. It's really a place for us to come together as a church family and to go deeper together and to be in community with one another. And so we're going to be launching our fall growth group series on October 10th. Um, And this series is... uh, I feel very, uh, It's the timing of it is perfect because I don't know about the rest of you. Um, I know for me, I know for Mike and Lisa, I know for a lot of us in this church, the last couple years, the last summer, the last week, it's been difficult. Uh, this morning, my children had um, a water balloon fight downstairs without anybody watching. So that's the kind of day it's been for me. Um, but oftentimes when these things come up in our personal lives, they, they also take a toll on our spiritual lives. And so Pastor Mike says this a lot. He says that the responses that we have, the things that come out of us in difficult times, they're not produced by the circumstances. They're actually being revealed. So those emotions, that pain, that anger, that want to frustrated this morning, feeling that was already there. My kids didn't produce that. That was already there and it was just being revealed. And so these revealed places, reveal places in our lives that the Lord wants to realign. He wants to reset. Um, There are places in our lives that we need to get back to what God had planned and destined for us. And so this fall, our series is called Reset because we want to do just that. And so we're encouraging you to really go for it this fall. Um, It's really important to process the things that come up in our lives in community. And growth groups are a great way to do just that. So we have groups that meet almost every day of the week. You can visit risenking.life and sign up for a group there. We'll also be providing a digital uh, devotional book that will be available to you. And I believe we're going to be doing some daily uh, Facebook live devotional. So you're going to want to visit risenking.life, like our Facebook page, really get plugged in this fall season. I really feel like it's important for us to go deep together in community. Um, But before we go there, We have been doing a series on Genesis and just faith through the lens of Genesis and some of the heroes of faith in Genesis. And I love how Pastor Mike has pointed out that these heroes are just ordinary people like you and I. And so this morning, it is my privilege to welcome Pastor Lisa, who will be preaching on the life of Joseph. Thank you, everybody, for that warm welcome. Uh, I'm going to be doing the Life of Joseph today, which is the last message in our Genesis series. I'm pretty excited about it. Mike asked me to do it, and he doesn't always give me the last word. (laughs) So I'm excited about this morning. The Life of Joseph teaches us that the worst events in our lives, they serve the purposes of God. God takes our messiness, our heartaches, and he somehow factors it all in to accomplish what he wants to do. You see, you and I tend to look more at the tears and the mess and the heartaches, but God sees so much more. He sees what is meant for evil, and he plans to turn it to good. Joseph's life is a personal crisis. It's a family crisis. It is a global crisis. 
It doesn't gloss over the evil that was done to Joseph. Quite the contrary, we see blood stains and tear stains all throughout this story. Joseph was disappointed and abused over and over again, yet every time we see God redeeming his pain. And that is why Joseph could say at the end of this book, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Joseph's life teaches us that. In God's hands, intended evil becomes eventual good. You meant it for evil against me, Joseph told his brothers at the end of Genesis. And this word, you meant it, is the Hebrew word for to plait or to weave. So basically, Joseph is saying, you wove it for evil, but God is reweaving, and he's weaving it for good. Max Lucado says it this way, God's the master weaver. He stretches the yarn and intertwines the colors and the ragged twine with velvet strings. He intertwines the pain with the pleasure. Nothing escapes his reach. Every king, despot, weather patam, and molecule are at his command. He passes the shuttle back and forth across the generations, and as he does, a design emerges. Satan weaves. God reweaves. Genesis 37 is the start of the story of Joseph's life. And there we learn that Joseph is his father's favorite son. He's hated by his brothers because he is the favorite. And he's also despised because of his dreams. Joseph had these dreams of he and his brothers where his brothers were the sun, moon, and stars, and his parents also, and they were bowing down to him. He also had another dream where these grains, uh, bundles of grains were bowing down. See, these dreams pointed that at some time, Joseph's older brothers would serve him and they would bow down before him. So one day, when Joseph's brothers saw him coming from a distance, they made plans to kill him. They said, here comes the dreamer. They said, let's kill him and throw him into a cistern. Then we'll see what happens to his dreams. So Joseph's brothers took off his coat of many colors and they threw him into a pit. It was a dry cistern. And the Genesis tells us is that while he was in that pit, his brothers had lunch and Joseph's cries rose up from the pit begging them to let him go. They ended up changing their plan and decided not to kill him Instead, they decided it would be better to sell him for 20 pieces of silver as a slave. So Jacob's sons, they return home with Joseph's coat, and they dipped it in blood, and they give it to their father as false evidence of his death. You see, only God can take the hatred of these brothers and the favoritism of Jacob and somehow weave it until it becomes good. Joseph was sold as a slave. He was bought by the captain of Pharaoh's guard, Potiphar. And God was with Joseph every day that he served Potiphar. Potiphar was blessed because Joseph was blessed. Joseph made his boss a fortune. Everything that Joseph did succeeded. God made sure of that. Potiphar gave Joseph responsibility over all of his businesses 
And Potiphar didn't have anything to do but check out what he was going to eat that day. But a problem arose. Joseph was uh, handsome, and Potiphar's wife began to have a sexual interest in Joseph. And she continually harassed him. And Joseph always responded to her advances by saying, how could I do this wicked thing and sin against God? Consistently, Joseph answered her evil with his good. When temptation didn't work, then she went to a lie. She accuses Joseph of rape. She takes Joseph's commitment to sexual purity and she turns it into evil and throws him into jail. Joseph had been blessed and he blessed Potiphar, but Potiphar's wife responded with evil towards Joseph. Joseph's life, we see this downward trajectory. He runs from being his father's favorite son to being thrown into a pit to becoming a slave, and now he's on his way to prison. But God's goodness never leaves Joseph in the prison. Through every attack of life, God is with Joseph. The Lord made Joseph now the favorite of the warden in the prison. And before long, Joseph was in charge of everyone who was in that jail and over everything that happened in the prison. God's presence and his faithful love never wavered. Wherever Joseph resided, there was God's presence. Joseph's life was not random. Even though his brothers had sold him, even though Potiphar's wife had tried to seduce him and thrown him into jail, God was with him. Here's what Psalm 105 says. In prison, they bruised Joseph's feet with fetters. They placed his neck an iron collar until the time came to fulfill his dreams. The Lord tested Joseph's character. So what Satan intended for evil, God intends for testing. Joseph's leadership skills are being developed while he's in prison. Talk about a crash course in leadership. When he worked for Potiphar, he had willing men working for him. But now he was in jail and he was assigned to rule over unruly, disrespectful, and ungrateful men. This prison, it's a testing ground for Joseph. That's where he meets the royal baker and the cupbearer. And both of these men are having trouble sleeping at night because of the dreams that they're having. And Joseph, he knew about dreams, but even these dreams were a test. Because God was testing, will Joseph give the interpretation that I give to him? And Joseph passes this test with flying colors. He gives the cupbearer good news, you're going to get out of jail. He gives the baker bad news, you're going to have a noose around your neck. Joseph's life in prison is one test after another. You see, that dungeon looks like a prison. It smells like a prison. It sounds like a prison. But if the angels pulled the curtain back, they would tell you, this is God's man, and he is being trained for God's job. Amen. Will he pass the test? The angels stand and wait and see. And the hardest test for Joseph, it was the wait. He begged the cupbearer when he left to go back to Pharaoh's court. He said, please tell Pharaoh about me. I don't belong here. But for two more years, Joseph remained in prison. The lessons 
Joseph learned in prison, they served him for the rest of his life. The humility, the patience, the insights that he learned there, he used to rule all of Egypt. God took a prison cell and taught this young man how to live in a palace. The clothes in this story tell a great story. I like to go shopping. I don't know about you ladies. I had my husband take me shopping yesterday. Clothes can be pretty important, and they're important in this story. Every time we see Joseph change his clothes, something important is about to happen. Remember, first we see his robe in many colors. They strip it off him, and they throw him into that pit. To Joseph's brothers, that coat represented his father's favoritism. Jacob meant to show how much he loved Joseph by giving him that coat, but instead what it created was attempted murder, human trafficking. That coat ended up breaking everyone's heart. Then the next thing we see him change into slaves' clothing. And, and as he's serving in Potiphar's house, uh, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him and she grabs his cloak. And Joseph has to run in order so that he can remain pure and stay away from Potiphar's wife. She uses that torn cloak and she uses it as evidence against him and falsely accuses him and puts him into prison with a lie. The next thing is we see Joseph in prison garments. And while he's there, Pharaoh has two dreams. <clears throat> and the cupbearer remembers, oh, when I was in prison, I met someone who knew how to interpret dreams. <clears throat> so they get Joseph to change his clothes. He gets shaved. He puts on new garments. And he goes to the castle of Pharaoh to interpret his dreams. Then Pharaoh responds to Joseph interpreting his dreams by giving him a royal cloak. He gives him a ring to put on his finger and he puts a gold chain around his neck. Every time Joseph changes his, his clothes, God is showing how he's weaving it for good. God is showing how he's changing his status. It says this in a walk through the life of Joseph. In fact, his clothing can be seen as a structure for his journey to the depths and then the heights. A robe of many covers marks his enslavement in Egypt. A servant's garment marks his imprisonment. Typical Egyptian clothing marks his release. And a royal robe marks his exaltation. Now let's get back to Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh had two dreams. The first one was of seven fat, healthy cows getting eaten up by seven weak, scrawny cows. The second dream similar. It's seven healthy grains of corn being eaten up by unhealthy, seven unhealthy ears of corn. And uh, Joseph stands before Pharaoh and he says this, I can't interpret your dreams, but the God I serve can. Joseph explains to God's revealed to you, Pharaoh, what's about to happen. There's going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of great crops, followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph gives Pharaoh this advice. You need to find the right man. You need to find the person who can gather up all of the crops in those seven years that can sustain us when the bad years come. So for seven years, the land produced bumper crops and guess who got the job of collecting them? Joseph. Pharaoh gave him the job. 
And it says that Joseph piled up huge amounts of grain, more than the sand on the seashore. He had to quit even marking it in his books because there was too much from him to even measure. God prepares us in times of abundance. Before the famine comes, brothers and sisters, before the bad time comes, God has already been moving on your behalf. He's already been preparing you, getting ready for what you need. He is storing up in heaven for what you need when the famine comes. God, he's staking out his territory. He's showing you that only Yahweh can produce good out of evil. What happened with Jacob? He produced the sons that hated each other. Potiphar's wife, she produced evil and threw Joseph into jail. Only Yahweh can produce good. So, seven years of abundance, then seven years of famine. Famine is such a picture in this book. The Hebrew word for famine is hunger. It's this gnawing hunger in the pit of your stomach. Remember the picture where the fat cow's eaten up by the scrawny cow? That's the picture that in famine, the healthy gets eaten up by the unhealthy. And in Genesis 41, 31, it says this, the famine will be so severe that even the memory of the good years will be forgotten. Does it feel like that for us during COVID? That the memory of the good is forgotten? Famine tries to erase our good memories. Famine breeds forgetfulness. Famine tells us, give up on your God-given dreams. Famine says, don't even trust that God will work the good. It's also a picture of bitterness. Bitterness is a spiritual famine. Bitterness, hatred, and favoritism has created a spiritual famine in Jacob's family. When you think about these wives and these sons, it's, it's like they're fighting for the scraps of Jacob's love. It never seems like there's enough love. Their household is like the skinny cow eating up the healthy cow because the unhealthy bitterness has been destroying the love in this family. Bitterness erases our good memories. It fills us up and makes us focus on the bad. Bitterness is like an evil eraser. You know, a lot of times in a marriage, there's been good years, but when the bad year comes, we forget about the good years. In a relationship, we've had good friendships, but when a slight happens, all the good of a friendship is forgotten. Bitterness grows and it tries to erase the good things that God has been doing. And we see that bitterness in Joseph's brothers. But what do we see in Joseph? Joseph is lifted up to a high position. He has been given a signet ring by Pharaoh to carry out Pharaoh's authority. He's been given a royal robe. He even gives him one of his chariots, and he presents him with a beautiful bride. But the external changes that Joseph has seen, they're not enough to change the internal turmoil that's going on. During this time, Joseph has two sons, and it's when he names his son that we see something of the turmoil. He chooses Hebrew names for his two boys. These are names that come from his land of pain. 
And um, even though he's thoroughly Egyptianized, he names his first son Manasseh. Manasseh means the one who causes you to forget. In other words, Joseph's hoping that through God's blessing, he will forget the pain of what he's gone through. Joseph's second son is named Ephraim. That means doubly fruitful in affliction. And Joseph shows that he has been blessed, but it has come at a great cost through affliction. Joseph names his son, and he's showing this inner turmoil. Here's a quote by Rob Reamer. It says, An external change cannot alleviate an internal torment. A change of circumstance will not overcome the power of the lie. Joseph's struggling. And while he's struggling, so is the rest of the world, because they're in the midst of an international crisis and famine. The famine is so severe, it's gone from Egypt, and now it's gone to the Holy Lands where Jacob and his sons are living. And Joseph's about to face the biggest test of his life because Jacob is going to send his sons to Egypt to get some grain. So in Genesis 42, Jacob says this, Sons, why are you standing around looking at each other? Go down to Egypt and buy us enough grain to keep us alive or else we'll die. So the ten sons start off for Egypt, but they leave Benjamin at home because dad cannot stand apart from the baby boy. Of course, he's probably like 20 now, but dad can't let him go. And as the brothers come to Egypt and bow uh, to buy the grain, they run into Joseph and they don't recognize who he is. They see this Egyptian man, they see this Egyptian authority, and all ten brothers get on their knees and bow their faces before him. And in that moment, Joseph recognizes his brothers, and he recognizes that his dreams are coming true. He has this epiphany. He thought his dreams were over. He thought that it would never happen, but here his dreams are being enacted out in front of him. But the internal change that he needs, it cannot happen just through the external change. Seeing his brothers, all of the pain starts to rise. Memory is very powerful. Our memories can be this container that can either hold the good things that have happened to us, or our memory can hold and collect the bad things that have happened to us. You see, our memories can be a container for the famine or a container for the plenty. It's so powerful what memory does to us. You know, when you work on your computer and you're putting in an email address, before you even get to the end, it pops up, right? Because you've already put the address in, then the address pops up. That's how memory works. Memory can be triggered by people, sounds, smells, emotions. And Joseph is triggered by seeing his brothers. He hasn't seen them for 20 years. So remember where he was the last time he heard them? He was in a pit. He, he could hear them. And now he's hearing their voices as they laugh. When I was in Uganda... Uh, I heard this woman give this great testimony. Her husband had been murdered 
by a tribe, by rebels that came from the Acholi tribe. And she was an intercessor, and she told the crowd as she was giving her testimony, she said, uh, I, I have learned to hate the Acholi people because they killed my husband. And she told how when she would hear their language, the bitterness would rise. I believe that's what's happening for Joseph. The bitterness is as rising as he's hearing his brother's voices. And even more as he's seeing them bow down before him because he knows it's his dream being acted out. Remember that computer analogy? As Joseph is looking at this scene, everything from his past is popping up before him. These unbidden, painful memories are coming to the surface. Joseph is the second most powerful man in the world, but he feels powerless in the face of bitterness. These old memories... He doesn't know how he's going to get past them. He feels so alone and unrecognized. His brothers don't even recognize him. Yes, he looks like an Egyptian. Yes, he's wearing eye makeup and speaking, uh, speaking that Egyptian language. But the fact that his brothers don't recognize him, this amazing world leader, we see more of his pain than his leadership in this moment. Here's what Max Lucado says. The gruff voice, harsh treatment, the jail sentence, the abrupt dismissal. We've seen this sequence before with Joseph and his brothers, only the roles were reversed. On the first occasion, they conspired against him. This time, he conspired against them. They spoke angrily. He turned the tables. They threw him in a hole and ignored his cries for help. Now he gives them the cold shoulder and sends them to jail. So Joseph overreacts a little bit. <laughs> They've come to buy grain and he sends them to jail for three days. His brothers say something, not realizing that Joseph can understand them. This is what they said. Is God punishing us for what we did to Joseph long ago? We heard his anguish and his pleas for life, but we wouldn't listen. Joseph hears these words, and though they don't recognize him, Joseph realizes they have not forgotten him. And Joseph goes stands in the crowd, away from his brothers. He goes to a, a place away where he can begin to cry. Joseph didn't cry when he was enslaved by Potiphar. Joseph didn't cry when he was rescued by Pharaoh, but he blubbered like a baby when he realized his brothers still remembered him. Joseph had excelled in the external. He had risen up, but internally, the bitterness was like a famine in his soul. You see, he was facing now the toughest challenge of his life. The famine, by comparison, was easier Mrs. Potiphar, he could resist her. Pharaoh's assignments, he could manage them. But this mixture of hurt and hate and lies that surged when he saw his own flesh and blood, Joseph didn't know what to do with that. Bitterness was eating away at his soul. Brothers and sisters, forgiveness isn't easy. And it would prove long and hard for Joseph. 
It takes four chapters for Joseph to forgive his brothers and probably a year in the calendar, but Joseph took the first step. He let his brothers out of jail. (laughs) And then he made sure to fill them up with all the grain that they can carry. Though deeply troubled and hurt, Joseph would not allow his brothers to starve. Jesus' disciples knew that it was difficult to forgive. They asked Jesus one day, how many times do we have to forgive? And Jesus answers, even if that person wrongs you seven times a day. Do you hear that? Seven times a day and each time turns again and asks for forgiveness. You must forgive. The apostle said to the Lord, show us how to increase our faith. See, the disciples knew it was going to take a lot of faith to radically forgive that way. So now Joseph's brothers, we see them again. It's about a year later. And they've eaten all the grain that they took home with them. And the famine is still raging. And Jacob says, okay, boys, you're going to have to go back to Egypt. You're going to have to return and go get us some more food. And uh, the boys say, okay, we'll go, but we have to take Benjamin. That man that threw us in jail said, don't even bother to come back unless you bring the youngest son, Benjamin. So Judah promises that he will take care of Benjamin, and they head back to Egypt. And when they arrive, they find out Joseph's plan to feast for them. They're surprised. They can't believe it. And as they're ushered into this feast, they're a little terrified. The last time we saw this guy, he threw us in a jail. Now he's throwing us a feast. They give him all these gifts, and again they bow down on the ground before Joseph. And the dinner's going pretty well until Joseph sees Benjamin. And then he emotionally falls apart. He has to to excuse himself and go to another room as he weeps and cries at seeing his younger brother. Now this leads us to the last and final test. This is the test that Joseph is again doing to his brothers. So after they've eaten, he loads all the camels and their donkeys up with food, but he hides his cup in Benjamin's sack. And then he sends them all off saying goodbye, and as the brothers get a little bit down the road, then Joseph sends his steward to go search their bags. And when they do, of course, they find the cup that Joseph has planted. You see, Joseph can't make up his mind. He throws them a feast, and then he tricks them. He eats with them, and then he goes and weeps. He's at war in himself. These brothers had pulled off his oldest, darkest scab over his wound, and Joseph now, he's vacillating between forgiveness and bitterness. And I think that's how unforgiveness works, doesn't it? Especially when it's that person we love, that person that we know, that person that we long to be with, but at the same time we hate and they've hurt us. And it's this terrible tug of war going on. When it comes to forgiveness, all of us struggle. No one has the secret formula. Forgiveness is hard work. So Benjamin's in this precarious position. He's been found with Joseph's cup, and Joseph has done so so that he will have ultimate control over the situation, and he's testing his brothers. Will his brothers 
be a traitor and give uh, Benjamin over to be thrown in jail? Or will Joseph see a shift that's happened in his brother's life? And Judah comes forward and he offers his life in place of Benjamin's. He's the spokesman. They're all willing to suffer the penalty, he says, even though Joseph insists no, only Benjamin has to go to jail. The brothers demonstrate that they are changed men, and this causes the famine that's in Joseph's heart to break. And Joseph begins to weep as he realizes that they're standing up for Benjamin. And he tells all the officials, clear this room out. And before his brothers alone, he says, I am Joseph. And he begins to wail. He begins to cry so loud that they say the servants outside of the house can hear him. There is 20 years of pain and hurt being left on the floor as Joseph cries it out. 22 years of slavery and imprisonment have come to an end and Joseph is reconciled to his brothers. In Genesis 45, this is what Joseph says, it was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. He's emphasizing God's sovereign purposes behind all the suffering that's occurred. Joseph saying, there's more to the story than you realize. There's more going on. God is saving the world and you, my family, through what has happened. Then with tears in his eyes, Joseph tells his brothers this, go get my father. Go tell Jacob I'm alive. Bring Jacob back here and let him know that I serve Pharaoh. I counted seven times that Joseph cries in this story. He weeps when they throw him in the pit. He cries when his brothers admit it that they sinned against him. He weeps when he sees his brother Benjamin. He weeps even loudly, I told you, when his brothers are reconciled. And then we're told that Joseph wept for a long time when he saw his father after more than 20 years. And as we come to the end of Genesis, Joseph weeps again as his father dies. And then at the very last time we read of Joseph's weeping, it's when his brothers send him a message. Now here's what's going on. In Genesis 50, Joseph's brothers, after their father has died, they're a little scared of Joseph. They know that God's been at work preserving their lives, but they're scared because they know what they did was wrong. They know what they did was evil. So they sent him a message. And they said, we know we sinned, but our father said on his deathbed, won't you please forgive these brothers? And Joseph's brokenhearted when he receives this message, and he weeps for the seventh time because he's already forgiven them. He's given them grace upon grace, and he's brokenhearted that they don't recognize what he's given them. And so he speaks to them kindly, it says. He ensures them that he will continue to take care of them. He says, I'm not God that I would have authority over you. And then this is what he says. Through his tears, he says this. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. 
A.W. Tozer says this, the Bible was written in tears, and to tears it yields its best treasures. I believe these words are a treasure that Joseph spoke through tears. What you intended for evil, God intends for good. Remember I told you at the beginning of this message, that word means to weave. So Joseph's looking at his brothers and said, you sold me as a slave, but God weaved it for good. Joseph's saying, I was put into a prison, falsely accused, but God weaved it for good. Joseph said, even though my brothers didn't recognize me, even though they didn't know who I was, God weaved it for good. You and I have been through such a hard season. 18 months where we've seen our family struggles, our neighbors struggles. We've lost loved ones. We struggled with our health and our jobs. There have been financial difficulties, emotional difficulties. We've watched our kids suffer. And our God is telling us that through it all, He is weaving. He is not going to let sin and evil have the final word. Our God weaves through every circumstance of our life and He says He can take that which is evil and bring it to good. Life turns us upside down. None of us gets through this life without difficulties. We'd be foolish to think that we are invulnerable to the evils of this life. But Genesis wants us to know the evil does not win. We see a prison. God sees a training ground. We see a famine. God sees the relocation of his people to a new place. We call it Egypt. God calls it protective custody. Because God's making God, his people into a great nation. You see, we see Satan's attacks. We hear his lies. We think our dreams are dead. But what God sees is that Satan is just his lackey boy. And he has to do God's bidding. Our God is weaving. He wants us today to let go of our bitterness. Remember I told you about that Acholi woman? As she stood and said she forgave those who had killed her husband, revival began to spring up in that meeting. They began to cry. They began to repent. God, have mercy on us. God, have mercy on us. Because forgiveness breaks the famine. We have been in times of famine. Today, won't you forgive won't you break the spiritual famine that's been in us and in our churches and in our families? Our God's weaving. He's taking the tangled parts of our life. He's weaving back and forth. Only He can turn this mess into something good. In God's hands, attended evil becomes eventual good. Here's what Max Licato says, nothing escapes His reach. Every king despot, weather power and molecule are at his command. He passes the shuttle back and forth across the generation and as he does a design emerges. Satan weaves but our God reweaves.
Will you all bow your heads and pray with me? Just make your hands a cup this morning and let all your bitterness and hurt, all your disappointment, all those places that you felt like you were imprisoned or enslaved, just let see them in your hands this morning. It's too heavy for you to carry. Just see it being transferred from your hands to God's hands. Give it to God, the God who weaves. Give that pain, forgive that person, give it to God who can reweave it into something new. And will you say these words with me in God's hand? Intended evil becomes eventual good. God, I declare over these people that you have good for them, that they will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We declare you are weaving and making all things new. We declare that you have advancement for us and you will not leave us in these dark places. Thank you, Lord, for the story of Joseph. Thank you for his life. And we look forward to see how you will make our dreams come true. In Jesus' name, amen.